You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. Hello, and welcome back to the Rock Behind the Climb. I am your host, Quinn, the Jazz Hammer, Todzo. This is part two of my introduction to climbing on the Sierra Nevada granite, where I'm going to continue the discussion of the features of the granite. In this episode, I'm really going to dive into the jointing and cracking of the granite and then talk a little bit about the chemical weathering that affects the rock, all of which feature prominently in the rock climbing. Like last episode, I'm going to refer to my experience climbing in the Highway 88 corridor at the Emigrant Wall and Kirkwood Lakes area to back up what I talk about and then talk about where you can find these features in some of the well-known areas. In the Sierras. If you are just joining for the first time with this episode, I recommend actually going back and listening to part one to get an overview of the formation of the rock and the glaciation that shaped it, because I'm going to build off some of these topics in this episode. All right, so as you might recall, this trip marked my first experience sport climbing, and no better person to show me the ropes than the great and awesome Bobby Hutton. Bobby is actually a bona fide route developer who has completely set, or at least had a hand in setting, all the routes on the Immigrant Wall. He is also featured prominently in the YouTube channel titled How Not to Highline, where he breaks down bolting techniques, route development, and all kinds of other good stuff. If you're interested, I have linked the channel in the episode description. Anyway, during our day sport climbing, I had a chance to talk to him a bit about route finding and development, because as you might imagine, it has a lot to do with the features in the rock. Here's what he had to say. So what are you looking for when you start to put in bolts and develop a route? So I usually walk along the base of the wall and I'm looking for continuous features that I know that I assume will go all the way to the top of the wall. I'm looking for interesting things like dikes or if there's uh, roofs or sheets to climb over um, or if there's maybe a weakness in between um, uh, two big pieces of rock. So discontinuities. Basically. Discontinuities, weaknesses in the rock. Cool. Um, that all link together to form an interesting route. Yeah, as you might have guessed, I may have nudged him towards using words like dike or crack or discontinuity to make for a nice segue into talking about the geology. But the sentiment is genuine when he says that he looks for features, things that stand out as something you can grab onto. Of course, that can all change when he starts to actually climb and bolt the route. For instance, on that 5.9 rated climb that I talked about last time, titled Trackless Wilderness, it was actually the absence of features, the slab climbing portion, that actually made up the crux of the route. However, when Bobby was walking at the bottom of the emigrant wall before bolting the route, his mind was geared towards the large sheet overhanging the second pitch, which caught his attention. Of course, though, once he gets a better look at the line, the essence of the route begins to take form and he can start the bolting process to dictate the way it'll be climbed. 
Here is Bobby on how he bolts the climbs. Okay, so once you've found a line that you think you're gonna develop into a route, how would you go about actually building the route? Well, so you haul in all the tools and gear that you need, uh, your ropes, your drill, your hammers, your wrenches, and of course the bolts. And at Immigrant Wall, I go ground up because I find that that makes the most um, consistent, um, reasonable routes because if I'm going ground up, I have to have a good spot to stand and place the bolt as I'm going up and which makes a good spot for the climbers coming after me to stand and clip a bolt. So yeah. um, you're finding ledges that are making for good belay spots. Mm -hmm. um, and then how do you decide where to put the bolts themselves? Where, uh, you know, for, for an actual sport climb? Yeah, so I, I place the bolts where I have a good stance uh, to drill the bolt. <laughs> um, so as I'm... And so I, I link together maybe five to ten um, good bolt placements, and then I stop and find as comfortable a ledge as I can and put in a belay anchor, and that's how. And then I break up the pitches that way. I try to go from nice, comfortable ledge to nice, comfortable ledge between the pitches. Routes that are developed, especially like this, where bolts are drilled into the rock, are the confluence of the creative mind of the setter playing with what the geology of the rock dictates. Sometimes it is easy like a vertical crack going straight up a wall, or sometimes it is not so obvious and the route setter has to add in traverses and moves to ensure that the route is doable and interesting. If rock climbing routes were a jazz ensemble, the route setter would be the pianist or saxophonist adding melody and improvisation to the geologic rhythm and bass, which gives the foundation for the music and dictates what happens. Okay, I hope that analogy works for you because I really want another reason to call myself the Jazz Hammer, other than the fact that it's a cool-ass nickname. Alright, here it is. The Rock Behind the Climb, a podcast where the funky Jazz Hammer nails down the jazz-like interplay between the rock climbing routes and the geology behind them. If you want to learn more about the treble, <laughs> you can tune into the YouTube channel that I link below because I am going to talk all about that bass. <laughs> okay, okay. Enough of the jazz. It's time to rock on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't help myself. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little more about some of the characteristics of the Sierra Nevada granite. And if you're sitting there cringing at the fact that I just called it granite and not granodiorite, go back to my last episode. Anywho, let's talk about the jointing in granite because joints make up the primary features in many rock climbs. And a lot of common features like dikes or veins have a lot to do with the jointing in the rock. So, I've talked a little bit about rock jointing in previous episodes, but in its essence, a joint is a naturally occurring fracture in a rock where no movement along the plane of that fracture has occurred. If there is movement along the plane of the fracture, then the joint is called a fault. 
So when I say joint, it is a pretty general term that re can refer to cracks in rock that can occur in many ways and look many ways. Joints in general can be broken up, pun intended, into two groups, systemic and non-systemic joints. This refers to whether or not there are sequences of joints in the same rock that have the same orientation and are roughly evenly spaced. One aspect of the Sierra Nevada granite that makes it so special is that there are usually three to four systemic joint sets that occur over huge outcrops. It is very likely that if you go check out the Sierra Nevada granite, you'll notice evenly spaced cracks that crisscross one another. I've posted a photo of what this looks like, taken from the trail to get to the emigrant wall, where you can see two sets of joints roughly orthogonal to one another, cutting through the rock. The reason you see a lot of blocky looking granite boulders, like the one I show in the photo of the Kirkwood Lake boulder area just down the road from the emigrant wall, is because multiple joint systems cut through the rock creating blocks that were plucked from the bedrock and moved by external forces like glaciers. But it's the joint systems that made the initial cuts. Okay, so the other point I want to make about joint systems is how to describe them. Classically, people like to describe joints in terms of their strike and dip. On this podcast, I will describe them in terms of their dip, dip direction, and thickness. I think the thickness is pretty obvious, but that refers to the spacing of the systemic joints. The dip of a joint is how steeply the joint is angled relative to a horizontal plane. For instance, a vertical crack would have a steep, near 90 degree dip, while a ledge that you could easily stand on would have a dip of about zero degrees. The dip direction is the compass direction that the joint plane is angled towards. For instance, if you have a 45 degree dipping joint sloping down towards due north, the dip direction would be north. Just like joints, the face of a rock wall outcrop can also be described in the same way in terms of its own dip and dip direction. So rather than completely confuse everyone and use degrees and compass directions, I'm going to try to describe the dip and dip direction of the joints in relation to that of the wall which, if I pull it off correctly, should give you a pretty good understanding of the kinds of climbing and features to look out for. So, here goes. I'm going to describe the jointing of trackless wilderness on the emigrant wall. Oh, and if you aren't currently occupied, I highly suggest looking at the two photos of this climb up on Imager to follow along. So, if you'll recall... Trackless Wilderness had a shallow enough slope to be considered a slab climb, meaning that it is a sub-vertical sloping face, which would normally make the climb pretty easy if it weren't for the lack of good holds. The reason for it being a slab climb is that the primary joint set is dipping in the same direction as the rock face. Eh, you know, maybe a little to the side. And at a dip angle ever so slightly steeper than the face itself. This is why there is a lack of features,
because the primary joint plane is basically in line with the face itself. However, since it is slightly steeper than the actual rock face, there are small horizontal cracks that propagate horizontally across the rock face, which mark areas where Bobby placed an anchor or a bolt since they are easier to stand on. This joint system can best be described as sheets because they're like layers of an onion that blanket the rock and are in like the two to four foot thickness range. Other than the sheet-like system of joints, the other one or two joints on this route are the reason we see any of the sheets in general. These non-systemic joints dip into the rock face in a direction opposite of the face to expose the onion-like layering. In terms of climbing trackless wilderness, there is one particular place where one of these joints cut off the end of one of the sheets, creating a three-foot overhanging ledge to haul yourself over. Okay, you know what? I'm not sure that was totally clear. Please go to the photos of this climb, which are well annotated and will make a lot more sense of what I just described. Let's move on, shall we? So, how did these joints come to be? The answer may surprise you. Okay, so unlike the bedding seen in sandstone or the columnar joints uh, that I talked about in episode 3, there is not one straight, lol, answer as to where the systemic joints in the granite come from. All along the way, from the cooling of the rock to it being uplifted, there were joints that formed. I am actually not going to spend a lot of time talking about the joints that formed in the rock while it was still buried underground, and rather, I'll spend more time on the joints that were created during the uplift process. This is for two reasons. First, I couldn't find a definitive answer as to how these joints actually formed. The theory that makes the most sense to me is that they were cooling joints similar to the columnar joints where the rock cracked in patterns due to it shrinking as it cooled. However, this theory is not confirmed, and I saw other theories about how these joints could have formed from hydraulic pressure of water or volatiles forcing their way up into the rock. One thing that is interesting about these joints, though, is that they were formed under anisotropic conditions, which is what makes them different than the columnar joints that we talked about in episode 3, where the joints form under equal all-around pressure. In the case of the columnar joints, they form top-down in patterns that ideally look like hexagonal vertical columns. But with the granite, these cooling joints form under immense overburden pressure while the rock is still buried and being formed. This condition creates joint patterns that are typically orthogonal, meaning at 90 degrees to one another. Sadly, though, I don't have a definitive answer as to why the anisotropic conditions lead to these specific orthogonal cooling patterns. The main significance of this kind of jointing is that you sometimes find these joints filled with another intrusive igneous rock 
or mineral. This means that after the original rock is cooled and jointed, another event causes magma to shoot up into the cooled, jointed rock and fill one of the joints, creating a new rock within the original. These intrusive structures are called dikes and feature prominently in a lot of classic Sierra Nevada climbs. They are called intrusive because they intrude into the original rock. In the Imager photo album, I posted a photo of a vein that I saw on the walk-in, which is similar to a dike, but instead of a rock filling the joint, it is just a single precipitated mineral. Just so we are clear, dike equals rock-filled joint. Vein equals mineral-filled joint. In the case of my photo, and in many cases in the Sierra, the mineral that fills this vein is quartz. I find these quartz veins to be particularly cool because they can stretch really far and look distinct from the rock that surrounds them. So anyway, the other reason I'm not going to talk much about these joints or the rocks and minerals that fill them is because I actually didn't get the chance to really climb on any during this trip. I'll save more discussion about dikes and veins when I do climb them in the future. Oh, I also want to mention that there are plenty of other types of intrusive igneous bodies that you see a lot of in the Sierra Nevada, where basically a new granitic rock will push its way in and expand into the existing rock. Again, I think I'm going to leave it at that when it comes to cooling joints, dikes, veins, and other igneous intrusions, because I can come back to those in later episodes when I experience them while climbing. However, if you want to learn more about jointing, the main resource I used was this free online textbook through NAU, so check that out in the episode notes on the blog. What I really want to get to is talking about those sheet-like joints that I hyped up when describing my climb up trackless wilderness. So, if you will recall from earlier, I described about this climb and honestly the entire emigrant wall as being a huge slab climb. To get into a little more detail about what this picture looked like, this wall was actually a curved surface that was steeper at the bottom and then rounded out towards the top. Every so often, there was a ledge running parallel to the surface, marking an area where a sheet had broken off. These jointed sheets are like shells of an onion, in that they are these layers of sheet-like rock curved over one another to create this slab wall. This kind of jointing is a part of a larger process that defines the granite formations throughout the Sierra called exfoliation. Let's get back to last episode when the granite first got formed underneath the ground from the subduction of the Farallon Plate. This caused magma to rise into the crust and cool slowly to form the granite. Well, as you could imagine, there was originally rock above the granite when it formed. The granite formed deep underground with an enormous amount of overburden pressure, confining it on all sides. However, as the Sierra Nevada mountains were uplifted, 
the rock that was originally on top of the granite eroded away. So you have the granite that was originally under a huge amount of pressure on all sides, but then you get rid of the pressure from the top, but keep the pressure on the sides. This causes the rock to bow upwards in the process called exfoliation. I guess you could almost think of it like a structural member buckling under axial pressure from either side. Okay, maybe just my fellow civil engineers got that analogy. How about this? Think about it like a deck of cards. If you squeeze both sides of that deck of cards with the palms of your hands, it causes the deck to either bow upwards or downwards, if you're bad at shuffling like I am. Well, in the case of the Sierra Nevada granite, it bows upwards because it is confined on bottom. That example with the deck of cards is good as well because it also illustrates how the jointing happens, where the onion-like sheets are like the cards in the deck. The only difference is that with the deck of cards, you are applying pressure on two sides to create an arch, where the granite has compressive pressure on all sides, which forces it into a dome shape. In the episode notes, I linked a video of this actually happening in real time in the Sierras. Yeah, Samhain actually found a spot that was actively exfoliating and was able to capture the ground literally popping upwards in the video. I suggest checking it out. It is these exfoliation joints and surfaces that are the basis for a lot of the climbs and iconic geologic structures in the Sierras. Starting with the emigrant wall, you can clearly see in some of the photos taken by Bobby on the Mountain Project, or in my photo album, the different sheets of granite that you have to climb over. As I have mentioned already, this emigrant wall makes up an exfoliated dome, where you basically climb up the steep side of it, climbing over sheets in areas where the top layer has broken off and exposed the sheet underneath. I also talked about the small, horizontally propagating cracks that make anchoring easy on this climb. These are part of the same system of exfoliation joints dividing the different sheet layers. Going beyond the emigrant wall, granite exfoliation is present all over the Sierras in some of the most iconic climbing spots. Half Dome, or really any dome, found in Yosemite is a product of exfoliation, with huge sheets of granite visible on the backside of the formation. Also on El Capitan, a lot of the iconic lines, at least from what I have observed, have come from exfoliation. I've linked the classic photo of Lynn Hill climbing up an exfoliated flake on El Cap. Examples of exfoliation are everywhere. When traveling in the Sierra, you'll see plenty of examples of the curved slabs and sheets that I have described. These are all most likely a product of exfoliation, the process of the granite buckling upwards due to a vertical stress relief. However, not every flake you see while climbing in the Sierras is due to exfoliation. On the large scale, the sheet joints and huge flakes on big walls are definitely from exfoliation. 
However, especially when you're looking at small boulders, you'll see flakes and shells that in some way resemble the onion-like layering of exfoliation sheet joints. However, on the individual boulder scale, it is more likely due to a chemical weathering process known as spheroidal weathering. So all the weathering I've talked about in the Sierras so far is known as physical weathering, which is the rock breaking down due to some external force, but not changing its chemical composition. With spheroidal weathering, it is actually a type of chemical weathering, which, you guessed it, is the weathering that causes a change in rock chemistry. Let's take a quick step back and quickly go over the mineral makeup of the Sierra Granite. As I talked about in part one, the minerals that make up the rock are largely light-colored silica-based felsic minerals, with some magnesium and iron-based mafic minerals. Of the light-colored silica-based minerals, the two most prominent are quartz and feldspar. Quartz is a mineral that you have probably heard of. It is soapy, sort of grayish in color, and super weather-resistant. The other one, feldspar, is white and weathers more easily. Well, when water comes into contact with a feldspar mineral, a chemical reaction happens where the one, the once intact and hard feldspar mineral turns into a soft clay mineral called kaolinite. As water begins to percolate into the boulder, more and more feldspar minerals are converted into kaolinite, breaking down the boulder little by little. It starts out as just smoothing out the boulder to round out its sharp edges, thus making it more spheroidal, <laughs> hence the spheroidal weathering. However, the process doesn't stop there, and will actually start to create shells within the boulder which turn into crimps and pockets perfectly suited for climbing. In the Kirkwood Lake boulder area, I did a few climbs on the so-called birthday boulder, which has some nice examples of this. There are a few nice flakes and clutch crimps that were created from the spheroidal weathering. Just like the exfoliation that I talked about, the spheroidal weathering tends to make shell-like layers within the boulder, but they take some time to develop. I'm not too sure on what the time scale is for spheroidal weathering, but you can tell the relative age of granite boulders based on how spherical they are. Of course, this spheroidal weathering, ugh, I am getting tired of saying spheroidal, <laughs> is not limited to the Kirkwood Lakes area. In fact, the source that I cited in the blog refers to the spheroidal weathering commonly seen in Joshua Tree, which isn't technically part of the series. Also, from some of the photos that I have seen of the buttermilks in Bishop, I think I will run into some nice examples of spheroidal weathering over there as well. One other note on chemical weathering is that Bobby and I both noticed yellow staining on the rock, which creates extra slick surfaces. I believe this is due to the oxidation of the mafic minerals in the granite, 
meaning the rusting of the magnesium or iron-based minerals. Sadly, I only had one source to sort of confirm this, but I saw it very frequently when climbing the emigrant wall and elsewhere. So anyway, look out for yellow staining as well and try to avoid it because it was useless trying to get any friction out of uh, areas that were stained yellow. Okay, in summary, I talked a lot about jointing on this episode, and then about chemical weathering. I spent some time describing the joints in terms of their dip and dip direction relative to the rock face, and then dove into how these joints were created. I talked about joints that occurred during the formation of the rock, and how those joints can get filled with other intrusive granitic rock or minerals in structures called dikes or veins. I then went on to talk about the coolest, most prominent joint systems on the Sierra Granite that form as a result of exfoliation. This is the process that creates the domes and onion-like sheets which blanket a lot of the rock walls. Finally, I talked about spheroidal weathering and the onion shell sheeting that happens on boulders due to chemical weathering. But, most importantly, if there is nothing else you took away from this episode, it is that The Rock Behind the Climb is a podcast where the funky jazz hammer nails down the jazz-like interplay between rock climbing routes and the geology behind them. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this series. As a reminder, all the photos, mountain project links, and sources are now contained in the blog I created for this series, so go check that out. As always, feel free to reach out to me via email, Instagram, mountain project, blog, or whatever, even if it's just to say hello. I'll catch you all on the next one. Jazzhammer, out.